This is Legion Field, Birmingham, Alabama. They call it the football capital of the South. Hi, I'm Merle Harmon with Alex Hawkins, and welcome to the first World Bowl. Well, all the tension, the excitement, the color of a championship ball game is here. And Alex, it should be a great matchup. There's no question about it. This is what both these teams have been pointing to since June the 3rd of this year. And I don't think they could have picked two more evenly matched teams. Bro. Well, both of them had very tough semifinal games to get here in the first place. Birmingham beat the Hawaiians uh, a week ago in a ball game that ended up in a 22-19 score. And one of the stars, of course, Matthew Reed, another Alfred Jenkins. This combo has pulled Birmingham out time and time again. Reed also a fine running quarterback. He's the backup to George Myra, but he can do it. On the other side of the ledger, well, the Florida Blazers have a great running game. And it's led by Tommy Riemann, who gained 1,576 yards to lead all rushers in the WFL this year. He had great blocking, but Riemann has been a team leader, as he was against Memphis. Florida won that game 18-15 after trailing at the half 15-3. Richard James gives Florida the great outside running threat to go along with Riemann, and those two fellows should put on quite a show tonight. Offense and defense. That's two-thirds of the story. The other third belongs to Alex Hawkins. You betcha. You. You've left out one important ingredient, and that's the special teams, and that's the thing that is so important to both of these teams. Last week's game, there's a, the Memphis team who is ahead at the ball game with the Florida Blazers. Time is running out, less than two minutes to play, and they need possession of the ball again. And you see Luther Pomp, Palmer, very, he's the king of the special teams in this league, and he's done a great job all year. Opportunistic team on special teams, and it's turned it around and made do that same thing tonight. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello there. Welcome, friends, to the uh, weekly proceedings that we call Good Seats, still available, our curious little podcast journey uh, into what used to be in professional sports. Uh, We are delighted and tickled pink to uh, go back into the World Football League, a treasure trove of intrigue. Uh, that seems to be uh, newly interesting uh, to uh, lots of people, especially as the uh, Alliance of American Football uh, saddles its way through its uh, first ever season. Uh, and the uh, newly reconstituted XFL uh, makes some announcements of their own for uh, their return next season. Spring football is in the air. And we uh, we love the idea of uh, going back into time to look at other challenger leagues Uh, to the supremacy of the National Football League. And God knows we've got plenty of episodes uh, previously devoted to such. But uh, among our more uh, uh, listened to uh, uh, sets of episodes have been uh, our conversations uh, with the uh, great WFL researcher, Mark Speck. Uh, And uh, I urge you all, if you haven't listened to uh, some of the earlier ones that we've done with Mark around uh, some of his other writings uh, around the World Football League, uh, you're in for a treat and as many of you have discovered, uh, the uh, the World Football League continues to uh, uh, confound uh, and uh, uh, become uh, an interesting uh, or evolving curiosity. Uh, and we're going to take uh, a uh, an opportunity to uh, welcome Mark back to the to the show after about a year or so. We're going to talk about one of those teams in the World Football League, uh, perhaps one of the most emblematic uh, of all the uh, uh, ill-conceived and uh, just dumb and bad luck and or uh, shenanigans uh, around uh, that league. And the team, of course, was the Florida Blazers uh, that were domiciled in uh, Orlando 
uh, back in 1974 for barely one season of the uh, WFL. And uh, we're going to get into some of those uh, those specifics and and some just uh, not only head scratching, but just just hard, phenomenally hard to believe uh, stories. This is a a team that, uh, you know, you were talking about 13 weeks uh, into the season uh, where the players weren't paid. Uh, and it got worse from there, if you can believe it. Uh, this is a team that uh, had uh, two ports of call prior to finding a home in Orlando. Uh, that's even before a, a first game was ever played. Uh, you've got uh, an obvious and uh, uh, understandable, right, when you know the F- uh, WFL's uh, story, uh, set of characters uh, in the ownership ranks, uh, both uh, real and uh, what ultimately became imagined. Uh, and just it's just a really interesting um, microcosm, the Florida Blazers, uh, were of the WFL writ large. And we're going to get to all those uh, uh, unbelievable twists and turns uh, with our guest this week, our return guest, Mark Speck. He, the author of And a Dollar Short, The Empty Promises, Broken Dreams, and Somewhat Less Than Comic Misadventures of the 1974 Florida Blazers book. Uh, and uh, we'll get into that conversation in uh, just a couple of moments. Uh, but before we do so, I want to uh, thank uh, two of our very uh, logical sponsors this week. I uh, can't think of uh, more appropriate uh, promotions than these from our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com, uh, where you can use the promo code GOODSEATS to get 10% off all of your purchases. And of course, uh, to commemorate this episode, you will find a beautiful uh, blue Florida Blazers logoed T-shirt uh, from the old WFL. Uh, it is uh, distressed looking uh, and it is uh, just beautifully uh, done as all the old school shirts uh, properties are. And uh, it's among uh, the uh, ma- vast array of not only um, uh, WFL uh, team logo shirts and whatnot, but plenty of old uh uh, leagues and teams from other leagues uh, and other sports, uh, and as well as things like uh, radio stations and old amusement parks and other sort of uh, local areas of forgotten history, uh, all commemorated in a beautiful, high-quality, crafted T-shirt form. Uh, at our friends, OldSchoolShirts.com, use the promo code GOODSEATS to get 10% off all of your purchases, and you may want to take a look, like I said, at that Florida Blazers uh, beautiful baby blue uh, t-shirt uh, that they've got and it's uh, it's it's very smart looking and uh, I think you'll you'll absolutely enjoy it so give them a check out at oldschoolshirts.com and use that promo code good seats for 10% off all of your purchases and uh, once you're done there or maybe even before you go there check out our uh, our also our uh, logical friends at 503 sports that's 503-sports.com don't forget the dash in between and uh, we got a promo code for you there, too. It's SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, and you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases there. And not only will you find uh, a bunch of uh, World Football League T-shirts and whatnot, including for that of the uh, of the Florida Blazers, but uniquely, you will find uh, a Florida Blazers WFL jersey. These are custom made in very small batches uh, by our friends at 503 Sports, uh, the original colors and uh, and logos. Uh, you can get your name uh, embroidered on the back. Uh, these are really high-quality, uh, authentic uh, recreations uh, of uh, various uh, uh, garb from teams and leagues no longer with us. And uh, the jerseys that they make uh, around 
forgotten football teams are especially notable. And uh, the WFL is uh, supreme among their uh, their custom collection. And uh, if you check it out, the Florida Blazers WFL jersey, it's a beautiful uh, sort of a, a, a crimson red uh, with blue and uh, uh, white uh, stripes and, and lettering and num- numerals. Uh, it's got the official authentic 503 Sports uh, uh, embroidered logo in there. And uh, you're going to be the uh, the envy of everybody in your neighborhood, for uh, especially you, you folks in Orlando, who may remember uh, the barely one season of the Florida Blazers in the World Football League. So again, that's 503 Sports. Check them out at 503-sports.com. Don't forget that dash, 503-sports.com. Promo code SEATS to get 10% off all of your purchases, including, if you fancy it, that beautifully uh, crafted and uh, smart-looking Florida Blazers uh, World Football League jersey. And uh, our thanks to 503 Sports, our thanks to OldSchoolShirts.com, and uh, our thanks to you for not only listening thus far, but going forward for our very fun, as always, conversation with our WFL expert, our resident expert. His name is Mark Speck, and here's our conversation that we had just a couple of weeks ago. The WFL uh, continues to be uh, not only an enigma, but uh, a fascination with uh, our little hearty band of listeners. And I, I will I will tell our audience that the episodes that we've done with you, which is almost a year ago now, uh, amongst the hundred now plus uh, total that we've done uh, are among or easily in the top two or three uh, episodes. Um, and I think that's uh, uh, yeah, obviously because you're a compelling interview, of course. But uh, but secondly, is is this uh I, I, eternal fascination with uh, with professional football, uh, maybe aided and abetted by uh, the uh, arrival of of two yet again new challengers, the AAF and next year's uh, reconstituted XFL. Maybe we could kind of just start though with uh, to remind our audience uh, who you are and what you've done uh, in and around the realm of the WFL, because uh, you know obviously you're uh, a, a locus for for much information about this. Uh, one and a half year old uh, or uh, only league that uh, continues to to fascinate. Yeah, it, can, it, it continues to fascinate me and it continues to amaze me how many people are still interested in it. When I started really seriously uh, researching the league back in the 80s, I figured I was the only person out there doing it. I, nobody else could at all be you know, interested in an old league, like you said, that lasted a year and a half, lost a ton of money. Um, and I just was amazed that when I found out there was really a big group of people out there that were just fascinated by it, that were interested in it, that collected and also researched it. And it still amazes me to this day. I mean, I started on, like I said, in the mid eighties, um, I started, uh, researching when I lived in Arizona, I went down to Arizona state to the uh, library, went through, uh, reams of, uh, old newspapers and, um, the microfilm. I mean, I looked at microfilm until I thought my eyeballs were going to implode because it just, you know, on and on and on, but it was fascinating. It was, uh, incredibly enjoyable just doing that, just finding out things that, you know, wasn't really researched at the time. There was no books except for the one by Herb Gluck that was out there. Um, it had pretty much forgotten. And this was right around the time of the USFL when it came out. And I think there was a little bit more of a, of a, a resurgence in the, in the interest in the WFL because of the fact that they had another new league and they said, well, what have they had done that before? And yeah, they, they had. And I think that it had the uh, effect of, uh, you know, bringing that resurgence of, uh, of interest back out again for the WFL. And it's lasted now till, till today. <laughs> 
Well, look, and again, the the uh, Alliance of American Football, which uh, interestingly had some interesting financial issues just this week as we're recording this episode. Uh, not a surprise if you look back into the the annals of, of pro football challengers, right? Uh, and yeah. and and the XFL re- newly reconstituted next year. Uh, who's to say that they won't go through some of the same uh, issues that arguably you can sort of see the seeds or the, some of the uh, original lessons uh, from the WFL. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you can go all the way back to the, to the early AFLs in the thirties and forties that tried to uh, buck up against the NFL. Um, they didn't last very long. Yeah. The AAFC, the all American conference that lasted four years, uh, one of the better competitors, I think, you know, they, they managed to get some of their teams in the NFL. Then you had the AFL, which probably was the best one, but it was a good time for them to come along at the earlier, um, rivals, I think came along at a time when the NFL was still pretty, you know, wasn't really a big league that they, you know, football itself. Let me rephrase that football pro football itself really wasn't the juggernaut it is today, or even in the, in the sixties and seventies, it was not that popular yet. It was still kind of a second fiddle to college football. They looked down on pro football uh, because the college football was the, was the, was the king at the time, army, Navy, that kind of thing, Notre Dame, uh, but by the 60s, when NFL really exploded with, you know, like, say, the 58 championship game with the Colts beating the Giants in overtime, NFL popularity exploded, and it was time a good time for a new league to come in, and that's what helped the AFL. It was just that popularity that helped them. And But by that time, the, a- the WFL came in. It had kind of crested, and the NFL was, you know, solid, um, Gary Davidson, who had founded the league, the WFL thought maybe it was time for a rival. It obviously wasn't, and it wasn't poorly, you know, it was poorly handled by the WFL, by the people who uh, ran the teams, by the people who ran the league. It was just not well done. I don't know if it, if it would have been, if it would have uh, lasted as long as, say, the AFL or become a second league, but uh, at that time then, by then, it was really not. And, and, and now, you know, the USFL did it, the right way by going off season in the spring. I think if they had stayed in the spring, they might still be around. I don't know, but I'm not sure how these new ones are going to go either. Like you said, the new AF already has some financial problems a couple of weeks into the season. That's really not a good sign. Um, so, you know, it's, I've, I've seen some of the games where the crowds don't look all that great. Um, I think their viewership went way down, kind of like the old XFL did there. They had the first year, first um, week, excuse me, uh, went great. And then by the second week, then people had said, well, it wasn't really what I wanted. Uh, the wrestling fans wanted more wrestling. The, the football fans wanted better football. And neither one of them got what they wanted. So uh, maybe when they try this new XFL, maybe they'll uh, refine it a little bit, make the football a little bit better, and, and, and kind of put the gimmicky kind of uh, wrestling things on the back burner. All right. Well, we'll get, we'll get to the Blazers, Blazers in one second. But uh, remind me as to why you. Right. What? Why? Uh, what was the fascination that 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 uh, convinced you to? Uh, why research all this stuff in the first place? What What's the uh, burning interest underneath uh, uh, your uh, steely exterior that <laughs> makes you uh, so passionate about this league and 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 the team that we're going to talk about today, the Florida Blazers? Well, you know, it's just the uh, the the affinity of having you know an underdog. I've loved the underdog. You know, I I think that anybody that would take on a a, a league as powerful as the NFL or the NBA or the NHL or whatever it's been through the years 
and try to take them on. I think that shows a lot of guts because, you know, you're really kind of maybe a losing proposition, but you're still going to go out there anyway and try it. And uh, that's what that's that the background of why I like it. But as far as the Blazers uh, with the WFL, I remember a book back in uh, the 70s. They had they had a series of books that came out, best sports stories of the year. Um, I don't, I can't remember who it was that put it out, but it was like a few years they put it out for every year, and they had one. I found one for 1975, which covered the year 1974, and they had a story in there that was basically kind of in generalities the WFL, but in particular was the Blazers. And they talked a lot about the Blazers, about what the the hardships the team went through. They weren't getting paid. They didn't get paid for like the last 13 weeks of the season. Um, They were bankrupt, but the team kept winning. The team kept together and kept playing, mainly because of their head coach, Jack Pardee, who some people said shouldn't have been just a coach of the year. He should have been a coach of all time for the job that he did, keeping those guys together and keeping them playing and winning despite all the fact, uh, everything that they had to go through, um, including like looking out in the parking lot from the tangerine bowl and seeing the repo men coming and taking their cars away while the game was playing. So it's just, just a long laundry list of things, but it was just amazing how they, they stuck together, kept playing, kept winning. Um, unlike some other teams in the, in the league that, you know, just, you know, they played, but they kind of went through the motions, didn't do as well, but the, the Blazers won the Eastern division, went in the playoffs, Won a couple of games, went to the World League, uh, World World Bowl, and uh, won almost won it. Lost by one point. So it's just an amazing story to me. After I started researching it, after I read that original book and found it, just leafing through it in the library one day, and I thought this sounds like a good story, and it really was. It was an amazing story. And the more I delved into it, the more I looked into it, the more I started talking to some of the players and doing interviews. Um, it was just an amazing story that came out from all of them that, uh, you know, that they just put up with all this stuff and, ama- and amazingly almost won the league championship. All right. Well, let's uh, let's dial the story back to uh, the mid to late uh, 19 uh, year of 1973. And, and I'm going to use this as a little background as, as a backstop, because I have here on my uh, my podcast studio desk, uh, a a book by Gary Davidson that was uh, published in 1974. It's called Breaking the Game Wide Open. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And yep. uh, a ghost written, I think, with a guy named Bill Libby. And uh, it's uh, I, I, there's no way to sort of better to describe it as more of a, uh, a, a one person sort of narrative of uh, the sheer chutzpah of this guy, Gary Davidson, who someday will get on the show, hopefully, uh, to hear some first person stuff. But um, the book came out just before the WFL launched. Right. And this is off the back of. His involvement with uh, the uh, the ABA and the WHA, where where and you read this book, right? It's all like, you know, the these are two leagues, the WHA and the, and the ABA are are well on their way to success. And when he gets into the, into the the latter chapters around how the football league got put together, you just you hear in the narrative is just hustle after hustle after hustle to get franchises and I don't want to call them suckers, right? That's more through the lens of history, right? But the idea of of getting other people's money to buy franchises in an aspirational idea at best, I guess is how I would characterize it. Um, maybe you can kind of use that as a backdrop to maybe put the, the Blazers, which weren't even the Blazers at this time, into context as this league was being formed mostly through the uh, the chutzpah and the, uh, the mindset of, of this Gary Davidson character. 
Yeah, I mean, he he started the whole thing. He had, like you said, he had had some success with the ABA and the WHA. He was all full of himself by now. He started two leagues. He thought, hey, let's try the NFL this time. He thought they were, he called them fat and arrogant. They were time for a for a rival to come in. Uh, but yeah, his his idea was he didn't he didn't do anything as mundane as like a background check. And a lot of these guys that they they picked to be owners. Um, they, they, some of the guys in the league that originally went in the original, what they would call owners, um, just took them by name only and then would sell them at a big profit. Gary Davidson being one of them, he had the Philadelphia team, which he then sold for a, an astronomical amount to someone else. And a lot of the other guys that had, and uh, Davidson had done that in the, um, WHA with a franchise that he had in San Francisco that said, okay, we're going to have a team here. But what he did was he just sold it, and they went to Quebec, and he made a ton of money on there. So it was, yeah, it was kind of hustle, kind of a just let's just fly by night. Let's not do anything as far as, like, looking into these people. Do they have the money? Do they have the wherewithal to really stick in there and be successful and try to, you know, financially uh, make it through, which is going to be a very tough period at starting out, as you would know. Um, you know, with any new league, they're going to have uh, struggles at the beginning because they're trying to establish themselves. They're trying to make themselves uh, a part of the football franchise um, landscape. And instead, they're, you know, so it, it, you really need guys with deep pockets, with a lot of money. And a lot of times they didn't have that, including the Blazers. The Blazers had a guy named E. Joseph Wheeler, um, who started the uh, the team in Washington, Washington, D.C. He tried to start there. Um, he, the uh, Redskins had pretty much an ironclad. Um, they pretty much had the uh, RFK Stadium for themselves. They had a lease that was not couldn't be broken. Um, and I think uh, Wheeler said at one time you couldn't have a PTA meeting in uh, RFK without asking the Redskins to do it. Um, but it was just something they couldn't get a um, a lease to get the uh, the, the field. Uh, they tried. Uh, then they tried to move to uh, Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, in the Naval Academy Stadium, which was a nice stadium. However, it didn't have lights, which is kind of uh, tough when you're going to play night football every week. So, And uh, they said at the earliest they could really get the lights into the stadium and install them would have been about halfway through the season. So I'm not sure what they would have done the first half without any lights, but that would have been interesting. But, um, yeah, they, they, were, they were just trying to move around. They couldn't find a home. Uh, Wheeler started to run out of money. Uh, he finally settled on Norfolk, Virginia, um, and went down there. He was going to use Foreman Field in Norfolk. Uh, not a really big sports um, area. They had the Virginia Squires, which weren't doing all that great in the ABA, but they really had no other major league team. They had the Norfolk Neptunes, who played minor league football, but as far as a major league uh, area, it really wasn't one. Um, they started, the, that was their next stop. They were going to go there. They were going to play in Norfolk. Um, they were going to be the Virginia ambassadors, uh, changed from the Washington ambassadors. Um, and then, then by then again, Wheeler's starting to run out of money. Um, he's really looking for a buyer. Davidson knows he's going to have to have a buyer. Um, they go to well, so, so uh, the guy up, who, so let's back up for a second. So, okay. so, so, so Wheeler's already looking to get out right before a team is even sort of on the field and or domiciled. Yeah, I mean, he was he just didn't have the money. He didn't, he didn't get the backers that he wanted. He really didn't have the money that he needed that anybody needs to to finance a football team is a huge undertaking, as you well know. 
you've got players, you've got front office, you've got uniforms, you've got all this stuff, you've got leasing on stadiums, you've got, you know, everything that you got to pay money for that takes a huge outlay of money. And he just didn't have it. He thought he could do it with smoke and mirrors like a lot of these guys in the WFL did, and he just couldn't, um, again, well, because so, of the fact you – So let me – I mean, interrupt. So, so, so how does – based on your, your, your investigation, how, do you, how does somebody like Davidson find a guy like Wheeler who – I don't even know what his source of income was or what his background was in terms of how he could even position himself as, as being a financially well-off enough – to get a new football team off the ground. Well, he was a, um, oh, I can't think of what he was. He was kind of a, a biologist. He had some kind of um, marine biology business that he had that I guess he just, again, hustled Davidson and said he had enough money to do this. But then another thing was that, again, you had a, a really bad time in American business we had a recession going on at the time, and it started in 73. A lot of people did not have, uh, you know, disposable income, whether they were fans, whether they were owners. So you really had a, a, a really limited amount of people that you could check on as far as being in the, you know, prospective owners in the league because of the fact that it was just a really bad time financially in the country. Um, with all the, you know, a lot of the different things going on with the recession, they called it the stagflation, they called it, um, you know, everything was just kind of working against them at the time, but he just, I guess, hustled Davidson said, yep, I can, I can do this. And, um, like I said, it was a name is a guy by the name of E. Joseph Wheeler, who, uh, had a, uh, marine biology business that said that he was a 48 years old marine biology engineering company. And he was, he was said he was going to bring a team to Washington, DC again, had trouble with that because of the fact that the Redskins had an exclusive lease on uh, RFK stadium. Um, they couldn't get in there. Um, they finally did say that they were going to have to pay an exorbitant amount if they wanted to, which he was not going to pay. Um, but one of the, uh, front office guys called uh, Wheeler the George Plimpton of the club owning set. <laughs> you know, he thought the guy was kind of sincere, but he just didn't have the money. He just didn't have the, the wherewithal to stay. He, and uh, the, this front office uh, official said, um, you know, he had, a, he had a chance to get out at one point. He had a $5 million offer for basically at the time a non-existing franchise to sell it and make a big profit. And, but this guy Wheeler thought he was sitting on a $10 million property. And instead of jumping out with an enormous profit at the time with a guy that maybe have had the, uh, you know, the financial um, money to be able to fund the team, he kept them. And, you know, the rest is, is history as he tried to, again, move from Washington, um, then down to Annapolis, then to Norfolk. So he just did not have the money. It seems like the modus operandi was to kind of like, okay, D.C. itself is not going to work. So let me see if I can look in the the regional Washington, D.C. area and extending that boundary a bit more, which is, I guess, where Norfolk Norfolk sort of came into play. Perhaps also with the fact that the the squires of the ABA, Earl Foreman's uh, basketball team there, at least had some Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, I don't know, professional credibility, so to speak. Um, but, but it didn't work out in Norfolk either. Right. I mean, but, but this is also the time 
Well, so, okay, this is it's really important to sort of set this up because this is also the time a very crucial player in all of this uh, comes into play uh, is this guy, Jack Pardee. Right. So is this is this around the time where Jack Pardee is hired as coach? Was he was he online uh, to to be the coach when they were in D.C. as well? Or did that not happen until Norfolk or, or how and when did he come into the picture? Pardee. Jack Pardee came in right at the end of January. The team was still in Washington. There's a, a picture of him with Wheeler holding what would have been the uh, the prototype uh, Washington Ambassadors helmet, which was white with a football-shaped logo on the side with a big W that had the uh, Capitol building in the background. It kind of looked like the old Washington Senators logo from the 50s and 60s, that, that type of thing. And, yeah, he was in there, but he was the guy who really added some stability to the franchise. He really got him going in the right direction. He knew what he was doing. Um, or even from that point, even just having – uh, retired from football in 72 and, and worked as a, a year as an assistant coach with uh, George Allen. Um, he had the wherewithal to get this franchise, at least personnel wise, uh, started in the right direction to where they could uh, start to ex- actually exist as a franchise. Um, he really was the big, um, the big uh, hiring that they had. I guess they went for Johnny and at first, United didn't want to get his hands on that train wreck, so he turned them down, and they went to Party, which to me was probably the best thing they ever did, was hiring Jack Party. He was the one that every player that would tell me or I've read about just said he was the man who um, who kept the team together and probably was was one of the all-time coaching jobs. Him, you know, keeping that team uh, competitive and not only not only together and not only still playing when they could have just said, you know, the heck with this, we're gone, we're out of here, we're not getting paid. We don't want to, you know, stay around. They not only stayed, they also were competitive and did a very good job. Well, this this was, uh, I think, his first ever head coaching job, right? Uh, after having played uh, his last couple of years with the Redskins uh, locally as a player, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. This was his first one. Like I said, he had retired in 72 from uh, playing, um, and then he went a year coaching with George Allen. He was a very big George Allen disciple, uh, liked a lot of um, – you know, veteran players, uh, when he went to sign players, he signed a lot of veteran players um, and a lot of defensive players, especially the, the defense was very laden with uh, veteran players, guys that had been around a while. And um, I think that, uh, you know, him being there, him being the coach and a general manager really, really helped that franchise. If, if he's not there, I don't even know if it even gets off the ground. All right. So I'm, what I'm trying to do is sort of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, parallel sort of the on-field uh, buildup of the team under under uh, Jack Pardee and uh, the off-the-field uh, uh, issues around where the hell the, this team's actually going to start and play. Um, let's return to Norfolk. What, what's going on there? Uh, it seems like a stadium had been found, but uh, it still seems to f- uh, figure that it's not going to it seems to me that not only is is the stadium and and the 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 market um, not a fully uh, embracing of uh, uh, the chance of a team, but also it seems like there's some cold feet finally uh, in the ownership box. Oh yeah, yeah. By this time, you know everybody's everybody knows the, the I think the mayor of, of Norfolk said this guy was he lacked he he had uh, he had everything to be an owner except money. Uh, that was the only thing he was really lacking was that you know if if he would have been able to. Um, if he had that, everything would have worked out, but it was just the idea that it was one of these smoke and mirror type of guys who came in, um, 
the city was happy to see them at first. They had a 24,000 seat stadium. They might have uh, probably filled it. Um, they worked out a great lease with it. Um, they had everything, uh, stadium, police, ticket takers, improved lights, rebuilt press box, locker rooms, and a practice site for um, $255,000, excuse me. And they wanted $100,000 up front, and Wheeler just didn't have it. He didn't have the money. He couldn't, couldn't pay it. He wouldn't pay it. And uh, that's what pretty much put the kibosh on Virginia was that he wouldn't even put any more money into it. And at that time, I'm sure, even though, um, it didn't look good. Like you, like, like we've talked about with the AAF, you know, things are already starting to go South even before the season starts. And I think that he went to Davidson and said, you know, I've got to get out of this. I don't have the money for it. We've got to find somebody to take this franchise off my hands. So I think that's what it was going again, probably around the middle of February, March, uh, that time frame. And that's again, pretty early in the whole thing. So, so, so what happens next? Is, 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 do you think Davidson's just having alarm bells, or is this kind of standard procedure in the first couple of months of the WFL's uh, existence? It seems like it's probably more more common, maybe, uh, that he was letting on, Davidson. No, I think it was. I, I agree 100%. I think that was a problem everywhere. We had, you know, from, uh, from every team, they had uh, teams changing uh, locations, team changing owners. Uh, it was just a time when I think Davidson just was, okay, here we got another crisis. Okay, what are we going to do with this one? Instead of, you know, the alarm bells, he just said, okay, what do we do here? And when Wheeler said, I got to get out, and uh, and this was in uh, in early May, he just he said he was going to finalize it, but uh, he would not do that because he was not uh, did not have the money that he was supposed to pay another $90,000, and he would not pay it. He said he just didn't have the money. So... Davidson and uh, I think it was Davidson that contacted Romney Loud, who had uh, been the uh, first African-American uh, member of a front office with the Patriots back in the 60s. And he had tried to get an NFL team for Orlando in uh, when they when they were going to expand. And he had a, a uh, group that he said was going to wanted to have a team in Orlando, but they picked Tampa and uh, um, Seattle and passed Orlando by. So he was looking to get a team, said he had the money. Um, so they went to him. He took over the franchise, um, in early May. And by this time, you know, the, the guys are starting to get into, um, training camp. They're having camp near Norfolk, which is where they were going to have it in the first place anyway. Um, but they were, you know, getting, it's, it's getting to be crunch time now. I mean, you're talking getting into, when it's because the season is going to start a little bit earlier than the NFL. They were going to start in early July. So um, the time was running out. They needed somebody. So he said, I'll take it over. Move it to Orlando. Um, they called it, uh, it was going to be the Florida Suns at first. and But they had another team, the Southern California Sun, and said, no, you can't call it that because we already have a Sun name. So they changed it to uh, the Florida Blazers at the time. But they had the, uh, um, Loud said he had the Tangerine Bowl. Um, which at the time was not the palatial uh, facility it is now. It's huge now, but at the time it only had about 18,000 seats, which really is probably more minor league than major league at the time. But they uh, uh, loud said he was going to expand it. He made promises, which he didn't keep, obviously, at you know 
at the time. So, yeah, I'm going to make, uh, you know, pump money into this, make the uh, Tangerine Mall a great place. Um, but it just never happened. But and it was just the idea that at least at least Dave, Wheeler was out. He he was he had it off his hands. Davidson had solved this problem. So now they could move forward such as it is uh, with Loud now at the uh, uh, at the helm and uh, the team now in Orlando. So uh, was any profit made uh, on the sale or the transfer of that franchise, or was that just, did it make, uh, was it kind of just making the original Wheeler investment whole or, 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 or what? And, and frankly, where, where was, where was Rami Loud getting this money as well? Because uh, as we'll talk about, you know, uh, he wasn't necessarily a, uh, a font of, uh, of funds either. No, he wasn't either. He really wasn't. I don't know if Wheeler ever made an actual profit. I've heard, I've read some uh, places that did. Some places said he didn't. They just, he just wanted it off his hands. He might have made a small profit, but uh, again, he was another guy doing it with smoke and mirrors. I, I, you know, talked to several of the, the players I talked to, and I've read stories about, you know, what what they what their recollections were. It was just again another idea of. Um, you know, just saying we've got money, giving the, the uh, leadership of the WFL the idea that, yes, I've got money and I can uh, run this team, when in actuality they didn't. And unfortunately, this was a um, a thing across the WFL, as we talked about earlier. It wasn't just this wasn't a, an isolated incident. This wasn't an isolated occurrence. The whole league had problems with this. Again, instead of really checking the owners, the prospective owners, Davidson just said, "Okay, you say you got the money. All right, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and you can have a team." So um, it just made things worse. Just made things uh, a, a mess starting out the uh, starting out the uh, league and getting it started. Well, it also seems that um, that uh, the Jacksonville franchise uh, owner was not necessarily happy about having uh, a team so close to Jacksonville in Orlando. No, he was not. Uh, Fran Monaco was very upset. He had. Uh, gone in there with the Jacksonville team. He uh, was not happy that they were infringing on his territory. He wanted some money and they made a settlement where they were supposed, he was supposed to pay um, him money. I don't know if they ever got, I think he might've got part of it. I don't think he ever got the full amount. I think it was close to a million that he asked for uh, to settle with it. Uh, But I don't think uh, Monaco ever got very much of his money. Um, There was a couple of, um, Deadlines that came and passed that the money was still not there. Monaco never got it. Again, you know, the the whole thing with Wheeler, whether or not he made a profit sometimes, in some places it said he made a a huge uh, profit of $2 million. Others say he he made about a $50,000 profit. So it's it's just all kind of uh, conjecture in a lot of places. A lot of times, um, Loud got this gentleman, David Williams, to help him out. Uh, he was kind of the big investor. He had um, Holiday Inns, a chain of Holiday Inns down in the area. Um, so he actually then he put up the team's offices in one of his Holiday Inns. Um, but, uh, you know, they just they just had trouble from the beginning down in Orlando. It just was not going to be any better uh, there than it had been in Washington or Annapolis or Virginia. Was there any, um, in your research, was there any uh, – uh, uh understanding of why uh, Loud's uh, organization uh, when they were bidding for the NFL franchise uh, was unsuccessful because 
in many respects, right? People have to sort of remember 19, circa 1973, 74, you know, Orlando, you know, Disney World had literally just uh, uh, kind of opened up or had gotten off the ground a bit, uh, you know, and this was, it was hardly the hub, uh, uh, you know, it is population and, and uh, business-wise it is today. Uh, this would have been, uh, had they been successful at in the NFL uh, expansion round, and then now having inherited or gotten this WFL franchise, the first true professional franchise in sports in the United States in the Orlando area. Yeah, uh, I, I really think that he just, they, they were not impressed with him. Uh, they rejected him uh, as a, an expansion franchise. Um, he, he made some comments, some uh, comments at the time about, uh, you know, the area, about uh, possibly, you know, he claimed for for a long time uh, during the season and even after the season that there was a lot of racial overtones. That that's why he didn't get any any pro, any uh, the, the NFL team and any WFL team didn't get a a real help from the city of Orlando. Uh, but uh, he again made promises to the NFL that the NFL just didn't buy into. Um, they didn't think that uh, he was they had the money. Again, unlike Davidson, the NFL did its homework looked at it and didn't think that they had enough money to run an NFL team. They didn't have a real good facility. Again, the Tangerine Bowl sat around uh, 18,000 at the time. The NFL is not going to move into a place that has an 18,000 uh, stadium. Um, so he, uh, I don't think he really had a chance. I don't think that because of the fact he didn't have a facility, whereas Tampa had the, had their stadium and, uh, you know, Seattle had the kingdom. You had stadiums there, whereas the, uh, um, you know, Orlando just didn't have that major league size stadium that the NFL was looking for. And again, he made some, uh, you know, he had some questionable backing. It was, again, they did the background checks. The NFL did is not like the NF, like the WFL. Um, they said that some of the people in his group were kind of shady, kind of not on the up and up as far as like whether they were, um, you know, had the money. Um, so yeah, so he was rejected by the NFL and then, uh, but Davidson was just, kind of desperate at this time because you had a team that had started out and you needed to get it off Wheeler's hands and he needed to do anything and Loud stepped in and said, I'll do it. He said, and I guess he just figured anybody is better than nobody. So uh, that's that's how I got into Orlando. Well, it was also the, around the time that uh, uh, the uh, local folks in uh, in Orlando were working towards um, uh, building and building out uh, the Tangerine Bowl into arguably what it's become today, which is, I guess it's now known as the uh, Camping World uh, stadium, but, uh, the, you know, essentially it is, uh, you know, that's been the host of now with the Orlando Citrus Bowl, et cetera. Um, right. so at least it seems like there was a bit of momentum, right? That, that, uh, but it's interesting too, because from what I understand, the, the actual, uh, uh, expansion and upgrading of that stadium from what you described it, uh, was itself almost a fiasco because, uh, construction, construction issues and engineering issues and all that kind of stuff seemed to be devil, uh, this uh, this this uh, uh, this uh, situation, or just around the time the teams come into play at WFL football. Yeah, I mean they they added some some bleachers. Um, they were carrying chairs up to the press box during the first game to for people to sit in. Um, they were putting in new um, um, goalposts at the like the day before the game. Uh, the guy was putting them in, and uh, the one of the team officials said. Uh, how long is your uh, work guaranteed for? And he goes, as long as I drive my truck off the premises, that's it. <laughs> so, uh, 
you had to, one of the guys said, well, maybe we can prop it up with two by fours. Unfortunately, he was uh, ignored. Uh, but it was just it was just a mess. It really was. Um, you know, they'd had a minor league team uh, for years, the Panthers there, you know, but minor league teams, um, you know, they're a little bit different from the NFL or the WFL or any kind of major league team. And they themselves lost money every year uh, when they even play there, even though they, they won a couple of championships in Orlando. They lost money, um, you know, quite a bit of money. Um every year and they, you know, they didn't draw that well. They didn't even fill 18,000 seats. So that was again, a thing that was against them that, you know, even a minor league team couldn't fill the stadium, but again, loud got everybody convinced that he could do it. He could change everything. And like you said earlier, Disney world had just opened. It was a booming kind of an area, but it just didn't have the facility. It didn't have the money. And, um, it was just an idea that, you know, uh, it was a bad idea from the beginning. It just was not going to work, and it didn't. And, uh, again, not doing the background checks and finding out if these owners were really uh, in it for the long run or if they were just kind of uh, shady characters that were just looking to maybe, you know, have a, a, a franchise and then selling it at a big profit. This stuff continues to fascinate me. All right, so let's uh, let's uh, dial up the fascination uh, and go back to the other side of the football, shall we say. Um so we're looking now, I guess, around May 74 or so, and uh, there's, you know, less than two months, I guess, until the, the WFL is getting open. And, and uh, the, the team is now domiciled in, in, in Orlando, for better or for worse. Um, but uh, take us back to a training camp and Jack Pardee. Um, team hadn't moved really yet, at least on the field, right? Weren't they still practicing and, and getting the team ready uh, and drafted, et cetera, uh, still up in Virginia? Is that right? Yeah, I mean, they were signing players when they uh, were still in, the, in, you know, in Virginia. They had the, uh, you know, again, training camp was opening up. And they had a, a, you know, party signed a lot of veteran players. He was like George Allen, a disciple of George Allen. Uh, loved the, uh, um, you know, the veteran players. They didn't make mistakes. But, you know, party had the smarts enough. He wasn't quite the... Uh, adverse to uh, rookies as Allen was, and he had quite a few rookies there on his team as well, kind of like Tommy Riemann, led the league in rushing. You had Greg Lotta, who was a tight end, who played for the Bears. After he played at WFL, he was a solid player. Um, you had quite a few guys, uh, you know, the, the defensive backfield. The defense was a lot of a lot of veterans that he, that he had signed. Um, they had, um, you know, Larry Grantham had come out of the retirement. He was an original New York Titan. He was kind of like their coach on the field. Uh, the defensive backfield had, uh, you know, W.K. Hicks, um, Billy Hayes, a lot of guys who had been around a lot. Um, so, yeah, he liked the, liked the veterans. He had signed a lot of veterans. They Like the other WFL teams, they tried to sign some of these future contract players. Uh, they signed Bob Davis, their quarterback, to a future contract. He was playing for the Saints. Uh, their big signing was Bill Berge, who uh, Pardee loved because, again, he was a defensive player, middle linebacker. He said he was uh, kind of an equal to Dick Butkus before his knees went out. Uh, he was very happy to have him, but they followed on a payment to him. Um, you know, one of the, the bonus checks that they were supposed to sign, again, showing that Loud just did not have the, the backing that he needed. Um, they, uh, they, they defaulted on a payment to Berge. His uh, contract was negated before he even went to uh, to play for the team, and he went back to the NFL. So, again, even before the the, the season started, you're seeing uh, signs of trouble, signs of problems, signs of financial 
um, issues that they you know, would experience the whole way through the season. Can you uh, can you remind our audience what this uh, futures contract uh, uh, situation was like uh, with the WFL? Uh, it's um, my understanding that this was sort of the way by which, in addition to the college players and the, uh, shall we say, NFL castoffs, uh, they would uh, literally try to go for the jugular, if you will, and try to find uh, top notch uh, NFL talent by trying to convince them to uh, to ultimately switch teams and leagues. Yeah, I think that started with Bassett, uh, John Bassett, up in. Uh, it started in. That was at the time he was. Uh, he was centered in Toronto before he moved to Memphis, and at the end of March he signed the Miami Three, the Big Three, uh, Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, and uh, uh, Paul Warfield, to future contracts when their contracts with the Miami Dolphins would run out at the end of the '74 season, then they could come and play for the uh, for the South Men. They were called in 75 because their contracts would have been out. So once that started, that made a lot of, uh, you know, headlines, a lot of positive uh, vibes for the WFL and the other owners decided to, to join the, the crowd. And it was just a mad rush to sign players. Birmingham signed Kenny Stabler. Um, they signed uh, Jethro Pugh and Rayfield Wright. Um, you know, teams were signing players left and right that, you know, that to these future contracts that once their contract ran out, um, with the NFL team, then they could join their WFL teams. Curly Culp, who wound up in the Hall of Fame, he signed with Southern California. Daryl LaMonica signed with Southern California. So they would sign these guys, making themselves look like, hey, these guys mean business. They've got the wherewithal, again, doing them with smoke and mirrors. And a lot of these contracts wound up being defaulted because they could not make the bonus payments. They were, Stablers was that way, almost every one of them. Uh, Ted Hendricks had signed, I think, with Jacksonville. His contract was was null and void again because they missed uh, payments on uh, on bonuses, that kind of thing. And again, it happened with Orlando, with the Blazers, with uh, Berge. Um, and they had a couple other guys that they'd signed again that they were not able to play. Fred Hoagland, who was a center uh, for the Browns, uh, they had signed him to a future contract. His contract was was null and void. So just it was just it looked like a great idea at the time because it gave them headlines, it gave them a positive outlook, gave the the, the football fans and the public a lot of idea that hey, these guys mean business, these guys have the money. But in the end it just really because of the fact they had to pay these bonuses and the and the um attendance wasn't good enough, the money coming in wasn't good enough to even run their own team. They're also paying these exorbitant bonuses to these players, which they couldn't pay. So, again, it was just another thing that looked good at the time, but, again, was another thing that just led to the league um, eventually folding in 75 just because of just a lack of funds. All right, well, let's talk about uh, arguably the uh, star player uh, for uh, the Blazers that uh, was uh, obviously starting to make a name for himself already from the sort of I guess the 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 Netherlands of uh, of the late rounds of the NFL draft. Uh, Tommy Riemann, who's this guy? Well, yeah, Tommy Riemann was from Missouri. Um, they thought he was a little bit too small. Um, they didn't know if he would make it or not. I think he was uh, he was uh, drafted by Pittsburgh, I believe. Pittsburgh kind of they cut him. Um, I believe, and uh, at some point in the, you know early on. Yeah, I think he was. I think he was drafted in '73. I'm not sure, um, but you know, he, he was a small guy. He wasn't a very big running back at the time. You know, big running backs were a little bit more in vogue back then. Fullbacks like Zonka, um, and but he was fast. He was 
he was really turned out. He, he, he turned himself around. He, they, they thought he maybe had a questionable attitude. He didn't show any of that in, in, in Orlando. Uh, he was a top-notch citizen. The poor guy had to eat at, or at McDonald's. He had uh, vouchers for McDonald's. He said, you know, I eat McDonald's three times a day the whole time, the, the whole season. He goes, I'll never eat at a McDonald's again. But um, he, had a, he had a good attitude. He loved the party. Party loved him. The other the players got along with him. Um, I'm not sure um, where he got the, you know, the, the reputation for having a bad attitude, but um, he didn't show any of that in Orlando. He started out the season on the bench, actually. He didn't even start the season as a starter. Um, they had Jim Strong, who was, again, a fullback, as one of them, and A.D. Whitfield, who had played around the NFL, bounced around for quite a few years. Again, that idea of veterans. Uh, but party gave him a chance uh, as the season uh, wore on, and he just started uh, running. He never stopped running, and I think it's like something like 1,576 yards. He led the league and was just a top-notch player and really helped the team as not only a running back but as a receiver coming out of the backfield and just really, even though he was a rookie, was kind of one of the leaders of the team. So how does the how does the season start to unfold? Because uh, uh, I think surprisingly, given all the, uh, the the financial instability that we're talking about, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, numerous uh, uh, franchise location shifts and and ownership changes and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, the league finally kicks off in July, and uh, in many respects, uh, Florida starts to kind of really you know start to dominate. Uh, in uh, in their play in the early uh, the, in the early goings, despite all those distractions, oddly. Yeah, yeah, no, you're exactly right. Like you said, with the distractions, they didn't get paid for their first game until after they played their second game. So you know, again, that that money thing started right at the beginning. Uh, their defense carried them pretty much the whole season. It really started out. Um, they 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 opened the season with three uh, wins. Uh, then they lost to Houston, but then they 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 came up and won three more games. Uh, they beat Chicago, which uh, at the time was one of the hottest team in the league. Everybody thought they were going to lose to them. They beat them 46-21, and a lot of it was the special teams, which again, like George Allen, Party was a big special teams guy. He had a special teams coach, but again, at the time, a lot of NFL teams didn't even have a special teams coach, but he was very much into that. Um, you know, that that was an important part of this, of the game too. Uh, they won some games with block kicks, um, interceptions, uh, runbacks. Their, their uh, kick return uh, guys were great. Uh, Rod Foster was a rookie from uh, Harvard, was a great kick returner. They had some other good guys that were, you know, that, you know, could return kicks and did it very well. So they, they were good on the special teams and good on defense. The offense was kind of just kind of one of those lunch bucket kind of offenses where they didn't, they weren't really flashy. I mean, you know, they had Raymond who was really a good running back. Um, but, you know, Bob Davis was the quarterback. He did get out of his contract with the Saints. And instead of starting in 75, he actually wound up playing for the team in 74. He was a solid veteran. He backed up Davis at the Jets. He played with the Saints. He bounced around for a while. But he was a solid veteran, um, had a good arm. He was a, a good leader. People believed in him, and he was good on the field with the team. Um, so it was it was a team that they stuck together. They had a, a good attitude. They had some good leaders on the on the field again, like Larry Grantham on defense, Larry Ely, who was another li- uh, linebacker, Mike McBath, who had played since the '60s with the Bills and a couple other teams. 
They had these defensive uh, veterans and uh, not so much on offense. They had quite a few actually rookies on offense, which is surprising again, because party was such a, a disciple of George Allen. He wouldn't start a rookie if, if somebody put a gun to his head, I don't think. But uh, party at least believed in some of the rookies and was, was, was willing to use them. But yeah, they, they, they kept winning. They, they lose a game here or there. Uh, and it was very close. The games they lost were not, they didn't get blown out. They lost to Memphis by like eight points, uh, Birmingham by one point. Um, and again, uh, one point to the, the, which is kind of still embarrassing to some of the players. If you ask them, they, they were the team that the Detroit wheels won their only game from. Um, so they, they don't like to look at that kind of as a, uh, as a positive because of the fact it was just, uh, the, that was their only victory of the whole season. But, you know, they're, they're, they just, they were a consistent winner. Again, if they lost, it wasn't by much, um, but they were a very solid team. Very good on defense. Again, just a very workmanlike on offense. It wasn't a flashy offense like some of the teams in the WFL, like the Philadelphia with King Cochran and uh, some of the other teams that used a lot of different sets and, and wild offenses. They just basically just ran the, ran the ball, passed when they had to, and they found success with it. They were very good at that. All right, so so uh, enlighten me and us, our audience, into sort of what's going on uh, with paychecks and uh, and uh, the business of of the of the franchise, right? Because uh, it's it's remarkable uh, how well this team did on the field, uh, given the uh, the the difficulties it seems that players had in terms of getting paid and or promissories for for such. Um, can you give a little bit more specificity as to who truly was getting paid and 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 not? Because I, my understanding is that Tommy Tommy Rearman, uh in in uh, you know in later years even mentioned that uh, or at least suggested that he didn't get paid at all for the entire season until his his co MVP check came from the league itself. Now I, that's that's curious to me. How do you live for months without getting paid whatsoever? If that's true. But it's clear that that some people were getting paid and maybe others were not. Or how was that sort of playing out? Well, some of the some of the guys wanted their um, their money deferred. Uh, they had the bonus money that they got. They signed like a maybe a bonus up front. Um, Riemann was one of those guys. He wanted his his money deferred, so he didn't actually get a check. You, you were right. He didn't get a paycheck, and that's why he was eating McDonald's three times a day. Um, and he. You know, he was using his bonus money to pay rent. And uh, there was quite a few players that did that. But the guys who did, they got paid for about the first six, seven weeks of the season. The paychecks were, you know, a little bit late here and there, but they did get paid. But then finally they got to a point where it was like the the seventh week of the season. And uh, Chuck Beatty, who I talked to uh, and interviewed for the book, said that he went to uh, the bank. The bank looked at his check. Um, went back behind the, the the wall there and then came back out and then had stamped NFS on it, insufficient funds. He says he still has the check because the, they just had no money to pay the players. Um, starting with that seventh game, um, and they, again, they had gotten some of their paychecks. Again, some of them had been um, deferred to the end of the season, which they never got, obviously, because they, you know, didn't have any money. Um, so yeah, it was just the idea that a lot of the guys that I, I talked to said, yep, I remember that day 
it was the day when I came in and I tried to cash my check and there was insufficient funds. And after that, they didn't get anything. Like you said, Riemann got his money for the, uh, um, you know, the co-MVP got that actually cold cash. They didn't even have a check because they figured with the checks, the way they were bouncing left and right in WFL, they, they gave them cold cash right out of a, a Briggs truck pulled up under the, under the field and, and gave the three guys their, their money in cash it was, uh, I think it was like three, it was a three, $3,000 each or something like that. So, and, uh, yeah. So I mean, it was like they, at one point during the, when they, all this money was not coming in and they were not getting paid, they got like $200 for a beer commercial that they almost cried because they actually had some money. So it was just, it was just amazing. You know, that this guy, these, these guys, again, stayed together, party kept them together and they all, all credited him. Everybody I talked to, everybody I read about, um, credited party with, with their success because he was the one that, and he was, he wasn't lying to them. He wasn't saying the, you know, things are going to get better. He goes, you know, I don't know when are your next paycheck's going to be here. I don't know when you're, if you're ever going to get paid, but if you want to, you know, show yourself as a good player, if you want to, you know, sign with another team next year, or the year after, you're going to have to play and play well. And that's the best thing to do is just concentrate on football. Let's try to forget about all these other things going on. And that's what they did. It was amazing how he was able to convince them of that. It was kind of a, as, and again, being a disciple of George Allen, the us against them kind of a, a mentality that he, that he put into these players that said, you know, it's us against the world. Uh, we're stuck without getting paid, but we're not going to let it get us down. We're going to be out there. We're going to win and we're going to try to win every game. We're going to play every game. And nobody, I think, I think we wound up a couple of players left. It wasn't very many. It was a couple of them. Finally, toward the end of the season, finally it had enough because they just hadn't been paid for so long. But party was able to convince all the other guys that, Let's keep going. Let's see if we can't win this thing. And they just about did. All right, we're going to take a quick, brief pause. And uh, we want to remind you that our friends at Audible uh, are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download. Uh, from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. Uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download, courtesy of us and Audible. Uh, and uh, it's something you can cancel at any time, and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device uh, exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices uh, available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, uh, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, uh, two great books on the great Julia Serving that might be uh, worth uh, uh, using your credit for. One, of course, is the uh, uh, the rise and rise of Julia Serving. It's called Doc. And it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cremet. You could use your credit for that book. Uh, and it's a great sort of uh, interview uh, style uh, uh, background on the uh, life and times of Dr. J uh, from, uh, from all sides. Uh, but if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course. It's written by Dr. J in, in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld. And it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julius Irving. 
Uh, and uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Yes, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's the link. Uh, and that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy uh, in perpetuity for as long as your device lives. Uh, they download a book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you uh, joining our conversation once again. So there's a clip there out on uh, in YouTube land of uh, of the World Bowl uh, game, which we'll get to uh, very shortly. That features uh, a clip from just after uh, the Blazers' uh, unexpected, I think, victory over the uh, Memphis Southmen in the semifinals to get them into the World Bowl uh, with a player named Louis Ross or Louis Ross, uh, and it, it's uh, it, it's it's very emotional. Uh, I guess Ross was on the special teams unit and was instrumental in, I think, blocking a kick or something to allow the team to sort of uh, move on. But it, it feels to me like a lot of his emotion was uh, almost uh, incorporating of all of the off the field stuff and the lack of payment and and the camaraderie that that Pardee had kind of, you know, instilled and, and kept uh, together. Uh, despite all of that. Uh, this is a guy to credit with the failed field goal attempt. He blocked it, and uh, looking at the size at you, Lou, I understand why. Uh, what was your thought? To uh, harass him or really to block it? Try to block it. That was, my, that was my biggest goal, trying to block the field goal. I'd like to say one thing. I just want to thank God for this. Uh, God, I played before the game, and uh, I told you, go ahead, boys, and uh, well, Lou, I'm sure you express the sentiments of his teammates. There's no question about it. No, I would I would agree with you 100% on that. Um, I, I do believe that just all the emotion coming out, he had, he was the one that uh, they had uh, they had uh, fallen behind Memphis in that playoff game, 15 to nothing. Bob Davis got hurt. He was their leader all year. The only player they had to, to replace him was a rookie named Buddy Palazzo, who had hardly played all year. The team just buckled their chin straps, as the old saying goes, and just kept, you know, kept at it. They went ahead 18 to 15. Um, Memphis drove back down the field, and they looked like they were going to tie it with a kick and send it into overtime. And Louis Ross broke through, blocked the kick. He just started running down the field, um, you know, and people were mobbing him. And he's, you know, they said that he was wearing a jersey that had holes in it because they couldn't afford to, to fix the holes in his jersey. And, you know, I, I've seen that clip. He, he was a very emotional player. He was a guy they got from the Canadian Football League at the beginning of the year. Um, Loud had to fly up to Toronto and try to get him out of his, his CFL contract. And, and he joined the team, and he was a very emotional leader. He'd been around for a while again. And one of those guys that uh, bounced around the NFL, played for the Bills, played for a couple other teams, and uh, – he was, and I think that just all that emotion came out from all that, the entire, you know, nobody gave him a chance against Memphis. They thought, you know, they had they had set it up to where the three, they thought the three um, division winners, which the Blazers were one of, should have had first week buys, but they had the Blazers playing the first week like they wanted to get rid of them. 
And that's what the team thought. You know, they thought, well, these guys want to get rid of us. They don't want us winning. So they had to play um, Philadelphia in a first-round game, um, whereas Memphis, for some reason, got a bye, even though they finished second. Or Birmingham, excuse me, Birmingham got a bye in the first round. And uh, so they, they just thought it was unfair how they were being treated. And again, it was that us-against-the-world us, us kind of mentality that party drilled into them, that George Allen had drilled into him when he was with the Redskins. Um, it was just that idea that we're, we're the only people that are for us are us, and let's just go out and show them what we can do and, and, and prove them wrong. I, I, it, it just it just feels to me like it is just the epitome of dysfunction um, uh, when you put all of it together, uh, including what I understand is that uh, Romy Loud would, would, would uh, I guess, publicly even uh, hinting even, I don't know, six, seven weeks into the season that they just may move the franchise altogether to Atlanta. So, I mean, how does yeah, that they, how does that keep spirits up? Yeah, you know, that was the thing. They were going to move them to Atlanta. They were going to play at Georgia Tech's Grant Field. They thought they had an agreement with a couple of guys up there. Uh, again, they didn't produce any money. Um, Loud went to the uh, extreme of calling the Tangerine Bowl a pig pen. He didn't endear himself to too many people down there. Um, again, he, he looked at it as being racially motivated. I'm not sure. Everybody I talked to and everybody I read about said he used that as a crutch where he just didn't have the money to, uh, to fund the, the team and to run the team. Um, yeah, they were going to move to Atlanta. That was around the sixth, seventh uh, week of the season, but that fell through. So again, you know, you've got all these things going on. Where are we going to play? Are we going to play here? Are we going to be in Orlando? Are we going to be in Atlanta? Uh, or are we going to exist? And, you know, that's going to wear on you every, I mean, you know, I, I look at it myself. Am I going to keep working when I'm not getting paid? You know, no matter where I'm working and football is a, is a tough game to play for free. Um, you know, it's just, it's really a physically demanding uh, sport and a job. Whereas, you know, you're working at your job, you're not getting paid for 13 weeks and you're expected to still be, you know, doing a top notch job. Whereas you can't pay your bills. You can't, you know, uh, buy groceries, whatever it might be. It's just amazing how these guys still hung in there despite all these distractions, you know, um, was just amazing to me. And it still is. Yeah, I mean, I, I see various quotes from uh, Pardee basically saying it's very difficult to concentrate on football when you have so many rumors of the franchise moving or or not. So what's going on with the ownership group, right? I mean, it's it's not just uh, loud, but it's also uh, his uh, uh, his uh, Mister uh, Holiday Inn guy behind the scenes. And I mean, so so how is he keeping this all together? Because it seems like it's just unraveling from the seams. Yeah, I mean, he, he you know, the, the players would all say, we never saw the guy. He would show up with a couple of bodyguards, loud, I mean. Um, he would show up and, and, you know, try to, you know, buoy their hopes. But he really, you know, they could tell he really wasn't wasn't uh, honest with them. Um, but, uh, yeah, David Williams, he was looking to get, to get out, the guy from the Holiday Inn. He kicked them out of the uh, Holiday Inn. Their offices were kicked out of the Holiday Inn. He was uh, backing off of his involvement in the in the uh, franchise at this time. This was getting toward the latter part of the of the season, um, and it was just really falling apart. It was like you said, dysfunctional from the word go. It really was. Um, it was just a team that just had. Oh, if 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 it could go wrong, it did go wrong for them. I mean, just everything. Not not uh, not a day went by that there was some kind of a crisis. There was some kind of a a problem going on that they had to deal with. Um, you know, the, the coaches were trying to 
trying to keep their spirits up because they're going through a lot of the same things. They're not getting paid. Hardy was not getting paid. Um, he had some money saved, thank goodness, that he could get through. But, you know, he's he's uh, trying to keep these guys up while on the same time he's going through issues himself because he's not getting paid. His wife, I guess, at one time went to a store to buy some groceries. The, uh, the manager there saw who it was, followed her home, and grabbed the groceries out of her hand and took them back to the store because he didn't think her check was going to pass and uh, it was going to bounce. So she couldn't even buy groceries there at the store, at the local store, because of the fact that they had such a reputation by that time that the team was just not going to make it. The team didn't have any money. Anybody who showed you a check was not going to, was not going to, it was going to bounce. It was not going to pass. Um, and there was a guy that said that, you know, he couldn't even get work done on his car because of the fact, you know, people couldn't pay their bills. It was just, it was just one, you know, trial and tribulation on, on top of another. It was just amazing. Um, and again, I went into this and researched it, uh, you know, full time and really uh, looked at it from all these different angles. It was just a mess, but, you know, it was just amazing how they did that. Again, you know, there's there's plenty of stories in the WFL and in any any rival league where you've got hardships and you've got problems and you've got issues where a team may go, you know, four and ten or, you know, five and nine, but here's a team that went thirteen and seven, won thirteen out of twenty games, won two playoff games and almost won the championship. But not getting paid, just being there and being for each other and saying, We're just gonna do this, we're gonna show them. And where, where, what they where, did. Yeah, where was the league in all of this? Right, it seems like the the league was uh, starting to get worried and and worse. Um, you know, which I can imagine as stories around. I don't know. I see here uh, the wide receiver Hubie Bryant not being able to pay his paper boy, and Jim Strong having right. his phone shut off and sending his wife and son back to to Houston to live, and 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 meals getting paid for by the by the booster club. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, it was just, any, you know, some, the booster club helped them out. Um, again, a lot of these guys had to go through a lot of, a lot of problems um, every day, it seemed like, where they were trying to, trying to just live day to day. You know, Mike McBath, I talked to him on the phone, and Mike told me that, you know, again, I, I mentioned this earlier, that they're playing a game, they're looking out into the parking lot, and the repo man's there taking their cars out of the parking lot. And, you know, you're dealing with that while you're, and you're trying to focus on a football game, try to win a football game when you know, I'm not going to have a car when I get out of here. <laughs> it's like, you know, they, they went to shave after a game. They couldn't find a razor to shave after a game. It was just, you know, uh, parties buying toilet paper for the locker room. Um, it was just an awful situation almost every, every day. And the league, um, they weren't really doing a whole lot. I mean, I, I, I don't know what, what their, uh, what their mindset was at the time. Um, I think that, you know, they probably made some promises to them like David's Davidson did to a lot of franchises said, yeah, okay, I'll have some checks for you. Um, and they didn't really, I think they might have gotten a couple of checks from the league, but it was just nothing. It was just a pittance to what they should have been getting, to, to what they should have been getting, um, what they should have been paid as you know as professional athletes and, and they were just professional in name only it was it was not not something that they were really professional they were pretty much either semi-pros or not pros at all so so the league though resorted to even suing the team right and then there was a counter suing that uh, uh it just seemed like it devolved and almost to the so explain this to me the it seems like loud uh, uh as 
the WFL was sort of closing in, almost kind of try to pass the buck, literally and figuratively, to David Williams, his uh, Holiday Inn backer, for right. apparently not living up to his promises of funding the team properly. I, it just seems like it's just a, a complete nightmare, uh, and, and frankly, it's probably spilling over into the into the the press as well at the time. Oh yeah, no, there was stories every 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 day in the Orlando uh, Sentinel um, about things going on again, you know, lawsuits. Um, Williams was wanted to back out. He said, I've had enough. I just don't have the money to do this. Um, a lot of, they played, they played their last home game in, uh, in September. And he only played one home game after that because they just weren't drawing. So the league changed all their games to road games to where they could play, um, you know, maybe get a few bucks at it, like say in Birmingham, which was drawing well, or Memphis or Charlotte. Um, but a lot of their, they only played one home game in the last, uh, last, I don't know, about nine or 10 weeks of the season. All the other ones were shifted to, to away games so that they could try to make some money. Um, but you know, they were, they were, they were, they weren't, uh, you know, they just weren't getting the money that they needed. Um, again, a lot of, like a lot of the WFL teams, a lot of the WFL teams were going through the same thing. And I think the league itself was just, overwhelmed by the fact that they had so many problems league-wide. I mean, they couldn't really focus on, say, like one team like the Blazers if that was the problem spot. They had Detroit. They had Jacksonville. They had, you know, um, every, you know, New York. Um, they had all these teams that were having financial problems, and I think they were just overwhelmed. I don't think they expected that. They had, plus the fact that Davidson admitted that he tried to use some of the the, the tactics they used to say the WHA where they would f- try to finance some teams, but that didn't work out. They should have just folded some of the teams early on and, you know, drafted their players and that kind of thing instead of trying to fund the teams. And it just got to be a, a domino effect to where almost every team was, was suffering at the gate, suffering on the field. And it wasn't, it wasn't the fact that, like I said, the Blazers were an isolated Occurrence. It wasn't like, okay, we got the Blazers here, but the rest of the teams are doing well. Let's focus on the Blazers and try to prop them up. They had problems everywhere. And it was just, I think they just got overwhelmed at, at some point to where they said, probably just threw up their hands and said, let's just try to make it through the season as best we can <laughs> at that point. All right. Uh, as we sort of uh, round the corner here, uh, who's this Bob Prentice guy? Because it seems that uh, a guy is coming in with uh, – uh, a, a salvation plan uh, come October. I don't know who, who knows where this guy and his group sort of come into play, but uh, I, apparently on one of the national television broadcasts, he's flashing a, a, a million and a half dollar check that uh, he's serious, I guess. It seems to me that there was a, it's not only sort of to, to save the team, but also, I guess, uh, to be part of the, uh, uh, the renovations and or the upgrading of this Tangerine Bowl stadium, which we sort of hinted at earlier. Yeah, I mean, this guy, Bob Prentice, shows up. He's, it's right before the, the Philadelphia game where they're going to play the bell in the uh, playoffs. Um, you know, Loud had been looking for investors for months. You know, he made all these promises he couldn't keep. Um, then they, uh, they announced this guy, Bob Prentice. He showed up at, uh, at, uh, at halftime of the, of the playoff game with the bell. Uh, they had a TV, like you said, they had a TV conference live where this guy was waving a check saying, hey, uh, he was a Cocoa Beach banking investor who was going to uh, help out with the Blazers because his kids like football. 
He was ready to pump $4 million into the team. He had some investors behind him, some guys from Cocoa Beach, some some folks from uh, the area. Um, and he, again, he presented this check for a million and a half to the general counsel, Bob Deutsch, uh, or the Blazers on TV to pay off the debts and to pay off the 13 weeks of back pay. It was drawn on a corporation called uh, TW Limited of Nashville. Um, but when they went up after after the Blazers had won that game, uh, Deutsch went up to Nashville. Um, they kind of said he all of a sudden got uh, cold feet. Um, he didn't want to. He was wondering whether or not he wanted to or not wanted to invest. Um, suddenly they start looking into it again. Another yet another person who said he had money and he didn't, and he just did not have the. Uh, the again, that money that he was promised was just empty promises again to this team. That they got, uh, they they heard, and had been hearing for months that yes, things are going to turn around. Here's another, um, you know, the uh, you know silver lining in the clouds that's going to come along, just like any that we've been promised you for months. And again, Prentice was another one who was just another Shylock, another kind of a shyster, kind of a yeah, okay, I've got this. They became, uh, you know. Questions were being raised by the WFL Board of Governors. They began to grow suspicious of him and began asking questions, and he didn't have the answers. And if they did, he was the wrong answers. So he balked at closing the deal. He held up the procedures, uh, would not uh, you know, let his money go all of a sudden. Um, so, again, it was just another empty promise. Um, so the, the Deutsch spent a whole week up at the Nashville Bank trying to get the deal to go through, but it never did. Um, and this was right before they were going to uh, play Memphis. And uh, as Matt Matzlowski said, we don't care about the money anymore. We're just going to – we're proud of ourselves and our coaches, and we're just going to do what we can to, uh, to uh, you know, to uh, win and to be the best we can because apparently we don't have an organization that we can be proud of. It's just us that are uh, – you know, it's playing us playing for us. And, you know, again, us against them. And uh, Bob Davis, he was he was taught, quoted as being, we're mad, we're tired of this, we've heard of it all the time, over and over again, uh, we're just going to finish the season because of pride. And it was just their pride that took them as far as it did, as far as, and with party at the, at the helm, drilling this into them, that's, that's what got them through. Yeah, the, the dichotomy is striking, right? Because, um, you know, while this uh, latest uh, deal to save the club uh, is sort of is dissipating, um you know, you uh, you're setting now up uh, the team t- for this game against Memphis. The Southmen were, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, Bassett owned uh, probably one of the more model franchises. Right, had the uh, uh, those uh, three uh, Miami Dolphins players sort of lined up for next season and, and made a lot of uh, stir. And they also had the best record in the league, right, seventeen and three. Uh, they were favored to basically to win the World Bowl, and it seems like the league. Uh, probably wanted to see them succeed and be sort of the shining example of what could and was going right with the league. Not not that there was a whole lot, um, but maybe take us into that semifinal game uh, that uh, in that clip that we sort of uh, alluded to earlier. Um, uh, incredible, right? That that the Blazers uh, would would uh, emerge victorious at Memphis uh, against the best team in the league. Uh, and despite all these uh, uh, financial uh, difficulties, yeah, I mean it was just the idea that and the Blazers and Party 
And Pardee was able to convince the team that they wanted Memphis and Birmingham to play in the World Bowl. They wanted, like you said, the model franchises in there to show them what was good about the league. And they thought they were being, you know, basically screwed over by the league. They didn't want them in there. So Memphis comes in. They, they go to Memphis. They're, they're ticked off because they, again, didn't get paid when they were promised they were. Um, back in August, they had played Memphis, and Memphis had, had rolled up like something like 250 yards rushing and really and had beaten the uh, Blazers. They started off this game the same way. They went 55 yards in their first possession, um, scored a touchdown. They got their uh, second possession. This time they went uh, 74 yards in four plays and went up 15 to nothing. And there's still five minutes left in the first quarter. It looked like they were just going to blow them out. Um, but again, uh, Bob Davis got hurt. Um, and again, that even made things look worse. They already been out gained 232 yards to 91. Uh, Paul Volano, who was a defensive tackle, one of their top players, broke his arm. And then Bob Davis got hurt. Um, Riemann wasn't doing very well. He kind of had a kind of an off first half. So again, they had this long-haired rookie from Southern Miss, Buddy Palazzo, who had spent seven weeks on the taxi squad and had attempted five passes all year. Um, he had played, uh, hadn't played in '73. He was going to try out with the Saints in '74, but then he got signed by the Blazers. Um, so. Here they come down. They're down 15 to nothing. It's kind of like, I like to look at it as kind of like art imitating life is when they made the movie The Best of Times when Kurt Russell's team is down at the half to that their big rival when they come back in the rain. It started to rain, which negated some of uh, the speed of Memphis. It, it started to rain in the game. Uh, and you've got the, the Blazers, who are more of a plotting team, kind of like, you know, just run it straight at them. That really worked to their advantage. They started to get control of the game. They were outplayed, you know, in the first half, but then their defense started playing better. The ground game started picking up. Uh, Tommy Riemann started moving. As Larry Ely said, he was running like he was possessed. Um, and they just started to, to come back. They, their defense tightened up. They started holding Memphis. Um, but they were still um, still down. But then, like I said, Palazzo um, – led the team back. They just pulled together like they had all year. And uh, with very little time left, they, they went ahead 18 to 15 when uh, Richard James uh, swept around right in from four yards out to, to put the team up. Um, and then uh, it was a, a little over a minute left. Uh, Memphis still could tie it. So they drove down the field from the, from their 43 to the 24, uh, they're out of timeouts, but they uh, had one of their players fake an injury, which I remember that happening quite a bit back in the NFL back in the t- back in the in the day. I think they made that illegal after at some point, but you know a player could fake an injury to stop the clock. So they stopped the clock with seven seconds left, and they were going to try a field goal. Bob Etter, who had played for the Falcons and a couple other NFL teams, um, went to kick the ball, and again it was Louis Ross who uh, broke in got his arms up, blocked the kick just as the gun sounded. And once again, they had, uh, you know, um, as Larry Ely said, we beat Memphis, the World Football League, and the refs here tonight, and we beat their money. Um, you know, anybody, you know, Hubie Bryant said anybody's, it's the first time, any, a few times in the history that anybody's beaten the system. Um, and Bob Davis said we messed up the entire NFL. They were trying to get rid of us all season, but they can't. And they still had. 
So, I, and it's amazing, right? And you saw the emotions in, the, in that clip. And, and so, all right, so then it's on to the World Bowl, right? And I, I, the league has got to be, and Davidson in particular, got to be apoplectic, I guess, that uh, probably the, the, the most, uh, cha- one of the most challenged franchises is, uh, despite all the odds, uh, sort of screwing up the, uh, the ideal World Bowl uh, uh, matchup. Um, right. But, uh, but it, it, that said, though, that the, the, the Birmingham Americans, right, who they were going to face, right, one of the top le- teams in the league and obviously uh, best franchises, were themselves no true paradigm, right? Because uh, my understanding is that as the, the World Bowl, the lead up to it, right, uh, it was almost like the battle of the unpaid teams, right? The Blazers hadn't been paid for, I don't know, 12, 13 weeks, but the Americans had been floundering, too. I think some of their players had been paid for four or five weeks going into that game. Yep, you are absolutely right. I mean, it wasn't a, a case of, you know, who had the worst, uh, uh, you know, they were sentimental favorites because they had uh, the Blazers were sentimental favorites because of the greater deprivation. But Flor- uh, Birmingham, excuse me, had just as many problems. And it, theirs pretty much went back to those future contracts. They had signed so many of those um, over the, the course of the season, and they were paying out these exorbitant bonuses that, their the, the uh, actual players themselves that were playing and some of the the bills they had to pay weren't getting paid because they had to try to prop up this you know and pay all these bonuses so yeah they were not paid for the last five weeks of the season they actually went on strike the week before the the World Bowl and said we're not going to play they got them to to uh, to play because they promised them uh, World Bowl rings if they won. Um, so they, uh, and some of them, I think it took about 30 years for some of them to finally get their rings, but, uh, they, uh, that's what they promised them because they went on strike. They were not going to do it. They weren't going to play. Um, so they, they were just as, as, as bad off in some respects as the, as the, as the Blazers. And they're, even though their attendance started out very well early in the summer, because of the fact that you had Alabama football and all that in the fall in it, their crowds actually went down as the season went on. So they, again, because of the fact their attendance was going down, they're playing, they're paying all these exorbitant funds to these, to these players. They signed the future contracts. It really hurt their team. Going back to what I said earlier at the, at the time, the future contract signings looked great, made good headlines, made good publicity, but in the end, it really bit them in the butt because now they have to pay these guys these bonuses they had promised them, and they can't, and it really hurt the team, and it even hurt, like you said, a team that was as successful as Birmingham was. Yeah, and, and we've talked about this in other episodes, right? Uh, the IRS uh, agents uh, basically uh, standing and sitting on the sidelines uh, as this game plays out because the Americans were in arrears in taxes, and... Uh, the league not only wanted to, or the IRS, sorry, wanted to not only ensure that the uh, the crowd and the tickets were being sold properly, but also perhaps uh, at what ultimately happened was a repossession of actual uh, uh, items and uh, and assets of the team uh, after the game in a, in an attempt to, uh, to to collect what had been passed owed to them. Yeah, I mean it was the it was you know the IRS said okay we'll let you play the game, but we're going to get a certain cut of the of the of the receipts. Um, and yeah, they, uh, they were in the locker room as the, uh, the Americans, they won the game 22, 21. They, uh, were celebrating their victory and the IRS agents are confiscating their helmets, their, their jerseys. And there was stories of guys were passing their stuff out to their wives out through the window so they could at least keep it in a, 
as like a collectible as a keepsake, but you know, they were getting their, um, you know, their uniforms repossessed right there in the locker room when they're celebrating winning the championship. So, um, it was just, it was just one bad story after another, even when they should be celebrating the league, when they should be celebrating the success of the league, that here's a team that won the championship. They have to deal with the fact that their uniforms are being repossessed in the locker room when they're celebrating their championship. So again, it was just that idea of bad publicity, bad, uh, bad news, just every day, every, every, every newspaper you read, every story. And again, a lot of that, um, I would say goes back to the, you know, the, the NFL, they, you know, they weren't going to help them any, anyway, because it's a rival league. And a lot of the newspapers, you know, probably had, you know, you know, had been covering the NFL. They don't want this team to look good. So it could have been a little bit on that way that they really emphasized a lot of this negativity. But, you know, that a lot of it was was justified. They just had a lot of negative news, a lot of negative aspects of the league that really made playing for the team and playing for the league hard and difficult. And, again, that's what makes this story so great is how Florida had overcome all these problems and overcome all these difficulties over the over the course of the season and still almost won the championship, even though they were pretty much broke by the time that game was being played. I, I'd love to see the entire uh, version of that game. The, the clip that's uh, sort of circulating out there on YouTube is only a, a part of the game because uh, not so a couple of different quick things. Uh, one, I mean, uh, Birmingham rushed to a 22 nothing lead early on, and it even seems like the game and a ferocious comeback by the Blazers uh, to get it to, to 22-21, including uh, a 76-yard uh, punt return for a touchdown sort of a, as the game is sort of nearing its end, but not without controversy. Um, and by the way, this is the game, by the way, where um, uh, the uh, that uh, $1.5 million check by Bob Prentice was shown during halftime of the broadcast, right? So clearly it seems like the team has uh, got some level of uh, encouragement not only to play the game for its own you know, for their own pride and their own uh, 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 team members, but also the fact that there is actually a glimmer of hope that this uh, franchise will live on, uh, given uh, the uh, the entreaty of of, uh, of Prentice and friends with his his check. But uh, the controversy, though, on the field was uh, Tommy Riemann scored a touchdown apparently in the first quarter that was nullified, and it looks like the television replay shows that he should have been in in the end zone to actually have given Florida its first score, but in turn it turned out into a touchback and. Uh, arguably, if that touchdown had been uh, uh, awarded in the Blazers' favor, we'd be talking about uh, the uh, the ultimate capstone of a crazy season, uh, with Florida being the champions, not Birmingham. Oh yeah, I mean, I think that really changed the uh, you know at least for the first half anyway, changed the momentum because yeah, the Blazers took the opening, you know, they got their first, uh, they won the toss, elected to receive, they drove fifty-one yards, all of it on the ground again. They had that kind of a grinding out offense. It wasn't a, a, a fancy offense. Jim Strong, Tommy Reeman are, are hammering away at the at the uh, at the at the Americans' uh, um, defense. Uh, Reeman ripped off one run of 24 yards. You got to the five. Reeman started around the right end and dove for the for the end zone. And like you said, it looked like he had crossed the goal line, broken the plane, as it, as they say, and before he fumbled the ball. But they called it a touchback. The the ball went through it. Um, Tommy Riemann said as he crossed the goal line, he was hit. Um, he fell. The ball dropped to the ground and rolled out of the end zone. So the television replay, like you said, confirmed that he had scored, but the officials ordered a touchback. 
So again, that changed the the complexion of at least the first half where they fell behind because I think that you know they were you know they changed the momentum. They had that momentum. If they had scored that touchdown, like you said, it could have been a whole different ball game. It could have been a ball game where the Blazers were you know get that early lead, take the to the crown out of the game, and who knows where it would have went. Then, like you said, it could have been a, a, a even more an inspirational and amazing story. And if they had won the game, especially on the road in Birmingham, um, but you know it was just not to be. It was again, and you know against that us against them kind of a mentality that you know it seemed like everybody was against them. The whole the whole world seemed to be against them. It's just us. But you know Birmingham was a very good team. Didn't get that twenty-two nothing lead. Uh, the Blazers again. They had Bob Davis back. He was back from the injury. Um, they came back and and scored twenty-one points. Um, toward the end of the, you know, in the, I think all of them in the last uh, last quarter, Davis hadn't even completed a pass until the the first day, the first play of the last quarter, um, and then he, like you said, they had that 76 yard punt return by Rod Foster, who uh, um, took it on his own 24 and went all the way, and that brought them within uh, one point. The uh, difference in the game was that the Americans scored an action point, which was the uh, extra point they used in the WFL. You couldn't kick it. You had to either run or pass for it. And the Blazers couldn't uh, convert on any of their action points. That was really the difference in the game was just that action point. But if they had had that touchdown stand up at the beginning of the at the game, like you said, who knows? It could have been a completely different story, even more inspirational and more amazing that they would have won the championship after everything that happened to them. All right, so let's uh, finally talk about the aftermath then. After this game, uh, after in the weeks after, what happens to uh, the magic check of Bob Prentice? What happens to the team? Uh, give us a sense of sort of where it winds up. Uh, and I guess I'll give you a little hint here or a little setup that uh, there was a great quote. I think it was in uh, your book as well uh, that uh, uh, Billy Hobbs is one of the linebackers for the Blazers. Uh, you know, in, in his frustration at the game's end, uh, he's basically just lamenting. Uh, how bad the call was uh, of that uh, denied Tommy uh, Riemann uh, touchdown. Uh, he's quoted as saying, you don't just blow calls like that. The officiating is the worst part of the, w- the WFL. The officials are even worse than not getting paid. <laughs> so the emotion, I mean, that, credit to the team, credit to Jack Pardee, credit to players like Hobbs and Riemann and, and uh, Bob, all the others, right, you know, who who stuck through all of this uh, uh, this craziness and frankly would probably drive many people away far sooner than, than these guys sort of hung around for. But what happens sort of in the near term right after the game, as well as in the, the days that followed with this team? Cause uh, it's a sad ending to a, a, a noble, uh, a noble achievement, I guess that uh, arguably goes forget forgotten in, uh, in, in sports history. Yeah, that, that was a great quote by Hobbs. That really was, but yeah, I mean, right after the game, um, Davis went back to Orlando, Bob Davis, he, uh, you know, loaned some money to some more of, the, of his more destitute teammates so they could at least get home after the game, um, on December 9th, which is like four days after the game. Some of the players said they might come back for a second season. This is how dedicated they were, how loyal they were to Jack Pardee, um, to come back. They were even thinking about if they were going to be a team in the second year, they would come back, but they, uh, the Bob Prentice thing never, never, um, came about. Um, the money just was not there. That was just a, again, another broken promise for the team. 
Um, you know, players are talking about how, again, how they lived off their bonuses. Uh, UB Bryant said he was owed over $17,000 in, uh, in salary. Um, they were talking about um, the, the check, the $1.5 million check that they finally ch- checked it uh, with the bank and it bounced like a Super Bowl. Um, the, the TW Limited, the, the corporation that the check was written against, was a month old corporation. Um, so who knows what was going on with that? Um, that was seemed kind of shady right there, where you've got an, uh, a TW, you know, limited uh, a corporation that are supposed to be, um, you know, solvent, and they're like a month old, and their check bounces that they uh, that they have, uh, you know, have written for the team that they want to help help them out. Uh, one of the um, members of the group that they had. The Prentice's group turned out to be an ex-convict who had been arrested for transporting stolen cars across state lines. Um, on the 13th of December, they met in New York to try to talk about, you know, what they're going to do with the team, seeing if they were going to give it, uh, you know, take it away from Robbie Loud finally and give it to David Williams. But Williams really didn't want anything to do with it either. Uh, there was talk about... Um, moving the team to Akron, Ohio. There was talk about moving the team to Oklahoma City. There was all kind of different things going on right after the season and, and the first few uh, months after that. Uh, it turned out that the uh, crowd was uh, at the World Bowl was exaggerated. They didn't have quite as many as they thought they did. So the IRS didn't get as much money as they thought they would have because the, they, again, which they had done earlier in the year, and I think what uh, – you probably know about is that earlier in the year, some of the teams had, you know, um, falsified their attendance records. They even did it right up to the world bowl. So, um, you know, it was just, again, more, more bad news. Um, it wound up that the, the blazers themselves were finally, um, kind of dissolved, but somehow they wound up being with, uh, a guy from uh, San Antonio, Norm Beaven, who bought the rights to the team, um, and in March of, uh, 1975, and then that team turned out to be the San Antonio wings that played in 1975, uh, loud himself, uh, wound up being, uh, arrested for trying to sell cocaine. Um, I guess that came about, he was trying to raise money for the team. And, uh, I guess in, in his effort to do that, he was trying to, uh, sell cocaine. He wound up doing that with an undercover agent and he wound up spending some time in jail. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it was just, it, even if the season was over, it still did not, um, did not end. It just kept going and kept going as far as bad news, as, as the negative news, as things that just continued to make the WFL look like it just wasn't what had been promised to the fans, to the public back in the 73, early 74, this was going to be a, a solvent, uh, a, a an alternative to the NFL, and it really wasn't. It was just something that, uh, from the get-go, was shady and remained that day until uh, October 22nd of 75, whenever it finally did um, did just finally uh, fold. So I, I urge our listeners to uh, listen to our uh, not only our other episodes with uh, with Mark, uh, uh, which are you know help give sort of even fuller flavor of of the WFL league wide and some of the other misadventures of some of the uh, of the specific teams involved as well, but um, but also uh, it's uh, it's just it's a very sort of interesting kind of uh, 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 I guess uh, 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 you know 
bookmark, I guess, around uh, the the perils of of being a challenger league uh, in uh, established sports, uh, and um, I, you know the uh, the road to uh, sports success is uh, is littered with uh, uh, many sort of dead bodies and, and promises. Um, what do you, um, what do you suspect? Did you ever, uh, here's the other question. Did you ever talk to Jack Pardee as part of your, uh, your interviewing and, and sort of, uh, get a sense of where his head was at, uh, with his players and, and what sort of kept him so in the game, so to speak, and dedicated? I did not. I wish I would have. I, you know, I talked to quite a few of the players. Um, he was not one of them I got a chance to talk to. I wish I had. Um, his, he was just one of these guys. He was very stable. Um, a guy who really looked out for his players. Um, he had been a player himself. He knew what it was like on that side of the, on the field. Um, and I think he was just one of these guys that, you know, he, he commanded respect. He commanded loyalty just by his nature, by his, 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 the way he carried himself, the way he was, the way he did things. He was honest. Like I said earlier, he didn't try to make promises to the team that this was going to happen, this was going to happen. He said, I don't know when you're going to get paid, but let's keep playing and let's do the best we can and let's get there. And, you know, you may be able to get signed by another team, maybe even in the NFL next year or the year after. So let's play as well as we can and and keep going and keep playing for ourselves and nobody else. And that's what they did. It was just an amazing story from, from him. And he just he just seemed like a like a – I mean, everybody I talked to and everybody I've read about, it was that was the guy who was given all the credit for the team, for the success of the team, that if it hadn't been for him, if they had had a coach that maybe wasn't quite as as stable, as maybe even experienced in the NFL and in pro football and how pro football works, maybe hired a college coach, who knows, it may not have been the same way. They might have collapsed after a few weeks. Um, but I think having party there. I, like I said, I wish I would have been able to talk to, to coach before, uh, you know, for, as part of the book, but he just seemed like a, a, a straight guy. One of those guys that you look to when you're having problems that you know, you can count on the players knew they could count on him. Um, and they were loyal to him. They respected him. They said, we are just going to keep playing for him and we're going to play for ourselves. And it was just an amazing story to me. It was just, Still amazing me to this day. Well, and I think too, and and in your in your uh, afterlife section of 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 the uh, and a dollar short book, right? You get into some of the what happened to some of the players and the and the various players, people involved. And Pardee obviously uh, used it very much as a springboard. Uh, it was not a fluke. His uh, his uh, ability to coach and and obviously maybe. Uh, have uh, the team overperform, shall we say, given all the sort of background circumstances. But I think the saddest thing uh, in all of that, especially in the afterlife section, uh, is what happened to Romy Loud. Um, you know, it, it's, um, you know, it seems like a very convoluted story and, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot more uh, there, but, uh, you know, uh, basically wound up in prison for, for uh, drug possession and, uh, and the like. And, uh, uh, you know, it just seems like a, a real sort of sad ending to what uh, could have been a very, uh, you know, a more uplifting story, I guess, at the end of the day with, uh, with loud. Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. I mean, there were, there, he had his supporters there in Orlando. He had his supporters elsewhere. I mean, I, I've heard from them and talked to them and read about them that yes, he wasn't completely an Island there where everybody didn't like him. He had his supporters 
You had people that thought that he didn't get the the support he could have gotten from the city, like some other teams do in other leagues, other uh, you know other places that they they'll support the team, they'll do what they can to get him there. Um, so yeah, it was it was a very sad ending for it, um, but for a man who wanted to, you know, he was the first. You know, the, you got to remember that he was the one of the first black owners in professional sports. I mean, right after Detroit, they started the season with them uh, with a multiracial um, uh, group of uh, owners. But, you know, Loud was right there in the forefront. And, you know, that part of it can't be, you know, can't be put aside and not not uh, talked about is the fact that he was a man. He had a plenty of of people in the front office who were for African-American that, you know, this is part of the, um, of the story too, that, you know, uh, it was just the idea that things just didn't work out, but, you know, the WFL, if nothing else, I think was a little bit more ahead of, of the NFL as far as, um, minority ownership, minority coaches, minority, uh, assistant coaches. Um, I, I really think that that part of the story should be told as well as the negatives, you know, and there was a lot of stuff that came out of the, the WFL that, you know, the NFL went to the, you know, the conversion, the, you know, the extra point. Um, it took quite a few years, but they did. And, uh, you know, they've gone into, you know, markets where the NFL, where the WFL was at the time, like Charlotte. Um, and then they, they moved teams and had teams there, Jacksonville, um, so, you know, you've got to look at some of the positives, too. It's sad the way it ended, the sad the way the, the, the season ended and the, and the league itself ended the next year. But, you know, some of the positives should be talked about as well, should not be forgotten, just as, as the inspirational stories of players, you know, playing for themselves, not getting paid. There's also the, you know, some of the uh, the things that they, they uh, the NFL finally took. You know, they moved there goalposts up, uh, you know, back to the back of the end zone after the, uh, the WFL did. So the NFL was, was, um, you know, reacting to some of the stuff that they did to make their game better just because of WFL. So some of that should be, should be, you know, mentioned, should be, uh, you know, part of the story as well as the negatives. Our thanks to Mark Speck. Uh, the book is called And a Dollar Short. Uh, the Empty Promises, Broken Dreams, and Somewhat Less Than Comic Misadventures of the 1974 Florida Blazers. And it's a wacky story. There's a lot more detail uh, that this uh, book uh, goes into. Uh, the book uh, And a Dollar Short is published uh, by our friends at St. Johan Press. Uh, it is available wherever fine books are found. Uh, and you can find uh, this book as well as Mark's other books as referenced, uh, as well as discussed on other episodes, by the way. All of that stuff uh, can be found and links, obviously, to these books, uh, including this one about the Blazers uh, at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. Yep, that's it. That's the website. You're going to find everything you need to know about this little silly show at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. Just search up this episode uh, or you can use our little search bar in there. You can t- type in WFL or Mark Speck or yeah, yeah, any anything that uh, you, that tickles your fancy around our little genre of forgotten sports history. Uh, it's all there for you in our 100 plus episodes and, and plenty more to come. 
Uh, and by by all means, you're going to be able to find, uh, you know, all those other things that'll help you keep connected with the show. That's our social media feeds at uh, in Twitter, for example, that's at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find us on Facebook. Uh, you can uh, click the link uh, uh, there on the site to uh, sign up for our uh, weekly uh, email newsletter. Uh, you can uh, send us email directly if you'd like uh, through uh, the website or uh, directly at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You know, all those all those methods uh, work and uh, hopefully uh, keep you uh enthusiastic and interested and uh if you got commentary you got suggestions uh whatever we'd love to hear it we appreciate when you do so uh we also appreciate you leaving us some uh ratings and reviews please why don't you uh whether that's itunes apple podcasts uh, uh on stitcher on uh, uh spotify whatever spotify whatever wherever you listen wherever you stream uh these episodes are now also available on youtube uh, you'll find our episodes there. You can just search them up. You want to leave some commentary there, too. Uh, but by all means, please, please, please leave us some uh, kind and uh, helpful and uh, very high uh, and uh, many starred reviews, uh, uh, because that's how people find out about the show. Uh, other people like you who might be interested, who don't know the show exists. Uh, and uh, we can't thank you enough for doing that. We also cannot thank our friends at Podfly Productions enough. And in particular, of course, the very good doctor, Jerry Payne, uh, for all his uh, production help and their production help in helping us uh, get our show uh, up and onto the air every week. And uh, we thank them tremendously. If you're interested in finding out more about their services, by all means, check them out at, wait for it, podfly.net. Yep, podfly.net. And that's our friends at Podfly Productions. Okay, we are done for this week. We appreciate your listening. And until next week, uh, we'll, uh, we hope you have a great one. Take care. Bye-bye.